Hi everyone, it's Joe Wigand from Medora, North Dakota, gateway to Theodore Roosevelt National Park and home to the Theodore Roosevelt Medora Foundation. With their help, we're starting Teddy Talks. The April program is called 26 Days with the 26th President. Each and every day, I'll be reading at length from some of what uh, Theodore Roosevelt wrote and spoke during his lifetime. Uh, as we go through, uh, I hope that you'll understand why Theodore Roosevelt at the State Fair in Minnesota on Labor Day 1901 told the people there to speak softly and carry a big stick. You will go far. Teddy Talks are proudly presented by the Theodore Roosevelt Medora Foundation in Medora, North Dakota. To learn more about visiting or supporting our mission to connect people to the Badlands for positive, life-changing experiences, go to Medora.com. Now, enjoy the pod. Good morning, my friends. It's Joe Wiegand coming to you from Medora, North Dakota, where we did have some of those uh, technical difficulties, getting the camera and everything to work out all right. So welcome, thank you for your patience and thank you, Tom Peeling. I think your inquiry, hey, where's the, where's the live Teddy Roosevelt Talks uh, program? Teddy Talks, 26 days with the 26th president, here to help uh, all of us get through the month of April, these challenging circumstances. Again, uh, our prayers and, and uh, all of our support to the doctors, the nurses, uh, to the men and women on the front lines in this fight against the uh, COVID-19 virus that has us indoors, uh, uh, isolated from one another, and hopefully through these uh, technologies connected to one another. I do like to start out uh, by thanking you for the uh, uh, the previous uh, uh, visit. Uh, uh, one interesting question came in again from uh, our good friend uh, uh, Rick Stern uh, in Fargo, and that was uh, uh, with regards to the uh, reference from Theodore Roosevelt yesterday, uh, to whom much is given, much is expected, or uh, in Luke, to whom much is given, much is required. So we actually had two citations of Matthew and one citation of Luke yesterday from Theodore Roosevelt. Today is Friday, April 3rd. And on this day in history, the birth in 1367 of Henry IV, also known as Henry of Bolingbroke uh, for his birthplace. Of course, uh, not only uh, known to many of you through the writings of Shakespeare, Henry IV, Part One and Two, but uh, also Henry V uh, uh, tells us about the the reign of uh, uh, of that uh, family at that time, uh, the uh, uh, the late uh, 14th and early 15th century in England. I should show you Lord Macaulay's History of England, as I showed you Einhard's uh, Life of Charlemagne yesterday. Uh, Theodore Roosevelt helped to establish the special relationship between the United States and the United Kingdom. Uh, his Secretary of State John Hay, previously Ambassador of the United States to the Court of St. James, helped to establish that relationship. Uh, the fact that Theodore Roosevelt knew his English history just as well as any 
English lord uh, probably came in handy in establishing that relationship. April 3rd, 1823, the birth of William M. Tweed, known in New York City history as Boss Tweed. Ran New York City with an amazingly complicated system of graft and bribery and kickbacks. And eventually, uh, through the work of uh, Samuel Tilden, uh, the Committee of 70, uh, members of Cooper Union, including Theodore Roosevelt's uncle, Robert Roosevelt, a Democrat, a one-term member of Congress and a commissioner on the Brooklyn Bridge, part of the organization that investigated the corruption. Uh, and eventually Tweed died in prison when Theodore Roosevelt was a young man. And I think uh, symbolic of the time period in which T.R. came up and aligned himself against uh, those uh, forces of malfeasance. April 3rd, 1882, on this date in history, just a, a year prior to the Marquis de Moore coming to the Badlands, the killing of the outlaw Jesse James by Bob Ford, a member of his own gang. Jesse James shot in the back of the head, uh, ambushed by his own gang member for a reward money. April 3rd, 1837. Did not realize this in prepping the show uh, yesterday, uh, remembered and discovered that that is the birthday, April 3rd, 1837, of John Burroughs, the great naturalist and writer, a dear friend of Theodore Roosevelt's, uh, called in his correspondence, Um John, uh, Dutch for Uncle John, and uh, Theodore Roosevelt and John Burroughs, a special relationship, uh, and I will be reading uh, from a memorial that John Burroughs wrote uh, in January of 1919, uh, right after Theodore Roosevelt's uh, death. April 3rd, 1883. Today is the 137th anniversary of the arrival uh, in the Badlands, and this at the train station on the west side of the uh, 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 confluence of the Little Missouri River and the newly constructed Northern Pacific Railroad in the day. Uh, the station was called Little Missouri after the river. The locals uh, often referred to it as Little Misery for the fact that life was so abject and poor and and uh but uh antoine amade marie vincent manca amat de valambrosa marquis de more at monte majora uh that's why he was just called the marquis in these parts i saw a photo of him in his uh, french lieutenant's uniform uh, he a graduate of the military academy in france uh, and uh, he was referred to in that photo as antoine more uh, M-O-R-E-S, lots of conversations about proper pronunciations. Difficult relationship, so the Marquis de Moore comes out in April of 1883. Uh, he's rebuffed when he attempts to purchase the entire operation on the west side of the Little Missouri River. Uh, that would be the Pyramid Park Hotel and the old army cantonment uh, run by Henry Honeychurch Gorringe, a retired, retired naval, naval commander uh, famous for retrieving Cleopatra's needle from Egypt and bringing that over to New York. You can see that in uh, Central Park in New York City. Uh, also then the Marquis, uh, it said he came to the east side of the river and decided he'd just build his own city there. And uh, to legend, smashed a bottle of French champagne on a tent peg with his manservant as a witness and uh, declared in existence Medora. Though my good friend, the historian Rolf Sletten says that uh, throughout the spring and summer, the Marquis wrote that he thought it would be just fine to continue to call the community Little Missouri, uh, but then uh, the Marquesa, uh, 
Medora von Hoffman uh, uh, previously, his bride from New York City, the daughter of a wealthy New York banker, uh, formerly a German baron, uh, that uh, uh, when Medora came here, by that time, the Marquis had decided to name this little village in honor of his wife, Medora. He began buying a great deal of land uh, along each side of the uh, Little Missouri River uh, and along the railroad. Uh, most of the cattle ranchers in this region, of which uh, the Marquis intended to be one, though he tended towards sheep ranching rather than cattle ranching. And for those of you in the West, you understand the uh, conflict uh, inherent in that uh, operation. Uh, he would put up fences. Uh, he even, uh, as Theodore Roosevelt comes out then that September and goes hunting and decides to invest and uh, begin to operate the nearby Maltese Cross Ranch about seven miles upstream uh, and south of Medora, uh, the relationship the following year becomes a bit testy. Theodore Roosevelt establishes a second ranch, the Elkhorn Ranch, uh, about 30 miles and downstream on the Little Missouri, and uh, in uh, the fall of 84, there are a few, uh, a few interactions between either the Marquis and his men or the Marquis and Roosevelt himself. Uh, at one time uh, when the, uh, Theodore Roosevelt is away from the ranch and back east, uh, half a dozen uh, cowboys, uh, ruffians, uh, including uh, Mr. Uh, uh, Paddock, uh, a uh, ne'er-do-well, uh, a man with uh, quite a, uh, an ill reputation, uh, he and others come uh, shooting their weapons and riding up on both Sewell and Dow at the Elkhorn Ranch. And William Sewell, that uh, sage man of the Northwoods of Maine, rather than being confrontational, he invites those fellows in uh, for a luncheon of baked beans uh, that had been uh, cooking in the ground and plenty of, uh, plenty of bread and uh, coffee. And eventually, if there was any sense of harassment by those men, they went and well, uh, well pleased with themselves for a good meal, and no further trouble was had uh, directly from Paddock and those men. Uh, there was an instance, however, where uh, uh, the uh, uh, the Marquis' foreman uh, told that uh, uh, Sewell and Dow ought to get some cattle off some land that uh, the Marquis uh, claimed uh, to uh, be uh, his. And uh, Sewell and Dow rode into town in the middle of the night, met with the Marquis, and had a note from the Marquis to that uh, uh, to the Marquis's ranch hand to let them know that uh, there would indeed uh, be no trouble with Sewell and Dow about uh, the uh, uh, the Elkhorn cattle being where they were. So uh, there was a letter that fall from the Marquis to uh, Theodore Roosevelt stating that uh, the entire Elkhorn ranch, well, uh, uh, Roosevelt would have to vacate it because. Uh, the Marquis, while not purchasing it, uh, he'd made claim to it uh, by putting stock on those lands. But the stock that he'd put on in the winter of 83-84 were sheep, in a variety that could not survive in the northern climate. So Roosevelt responded by letter that uh, he had indeed found sheep on the land, but they were all dead, and that dead sheep did not constitute a proper claim uh, to land in the west, and so again, no further uh, argumentation on that point. Uh, however, then by uh, the fall of 1885, the Marquis was up on charges and in jail in Bismarck. This was perhaps either the second or third time that uh, the Marquis had been before the bar of justice for the murder of uh, Frank Lufsey, 
uh, a cowboy ambush just on the west side of Medora here. The Marquis and Paddock uh, being on trial. Uh, Lufsey and others had been shooting up town previously and bragging that they were going to shoot the Frenchman. You can imagine a French nobleman with all of his uh, uh, high ideals of noblesse oblige, but also uh, I think uh, the obligation was that uh, everyone should make sure that he was happy. That sort of attitude didn't go over well with the cowboys here in the West. So, And the idea of putting up fences, uh, wire fences to keep in uh, his stock and his sheep. Well, uh, those fences were very often to torn down by the very cowboys who would come in confrontation with the Marquis. So there was an exchange of letters. From prison, the Marquis wrote to Theodore Roosevelt uh, thusly, if I've got it right, this was September of 1885. The Marquis wrote, My dear Roosevelt, my principle is to take the bull by the horns. Joe Ferris is very active against me and has been instrumental in getting me indicted uh, by furnishing money to witnesses uh, and uh, hunting them up. The papers also publish very stupid accounts of our quarreling. I sent you the paper to New York. Is this done by your order? I thought you my friend. If you are my enemy, I want to know it. I am always on hand, as you know, and between gentlemen, it is easy to settle matters of that sort directly. Yours very truly, Mora, or Morris. Uh, and then there's a PS. I hear people want to organize the county. I am opposed to it for one more year, at least. Uh, Roosevelt interpreted this uh, phrase, uh, um, uh, I am always on hand, as you know, and uh, that there are ways for uh, gentlemen uh, to uh, easily settle these matters uh, directly. Uh, Theodore Roosevelt interpreted this as a threat of a duel. He said so to William Sewell and told Sewell that if there were a duel, he being challenged and having the right to uh, the terms, uh, or at least the weapons, would choose Winchester rifles at 12 paces. The Marquis was known as not only a marksman, but also as a, a tremendous swordsman, and uh, had been uh, previously involved in duels in France. And, uh, though dueling was uh, part of the history of the Bullock family on Theodore Roosevelt's mother's side, uh, well, we don't have to wonder, uh, no duel happened. Uh, uh, but uh, Theodore Roosevelt was rather direct as well, uh, uh, with careful language to the Marquis. A draft of the letter he sent to the Marquis uh, was written on the back of the Marquis's letter and retained for history. We don't have the original uh, that would have been in the receipt of the Marquis in prison in Bismarck. But this is what Roosevelt wrote to the Marquis. Most emphatically, I am not your enemy. If I were, you would know it, for I would be an open one, and would not have asked you to my house, nor gone to yours. As your, uh, as your final words, however, seem to imply a threat, it is due to myself uh, to, uh, that the statement is not made through any fear, if possible, uh, uh, Conquer uh, to me, I too, as you know, am always on hand and ever ready to hold myself accountable in any way for anything I have said or done. Yours very truly, Theodore Roosevelt. Uh, this is uh, the uh, instance of why there's a, 
uh, some talk that, uh, boy, they, uh, they almost had a duel. Well, if they did so, it was dueling letters from Medora and Bismarck and, and nothing to be, uh, uh, to be said beyond that. Uh, and my apologies for a bit of a, a tough reading on the handwriting of Theodore Roosevelt. So on April 3rd, 1887, uh, the Marquis de Moore comes to the Valley of the Little Missouri, uh, begins to establish his slaughterhouse, his abattoir. His idea is to slaughter the, uh, the beef here uh, along the Little Missouri and then send that by a refrigerated train car to the market in Chicago. And uh, the only thing that still stands from that uh, uh, ill-planned and executed scheme is the big chimney that we have at Chimney Park. Though here in Medora, we also have a tremendous North Dakota State Historical Site, and that is the uh, Chateau de Moore, uh, the 26-room hunting lodge. And while it may have been just a little hunting lodge to the Marquis and the Marquesa, the latter of whom was said to be a better shot and a better huntress uh, than her husband, uh, that uh, that beautiful chateau is open every summer for tours and some wonderful living history programs go on in the porch there. You can tour the home. It's just as if it been, had been left in the late 19th century. Beautiful furnishings from France and, and that sort of thing. The relationship between Theodore Roosevelt and the Marquis de Moore, that relationship of neighbors, even neighbors who may be contentious. Theodore Roosevelt and his men, uh, by agreement with the Marquis, uh, from the previous evening, brought in a bunch of cattle one morning to sell to the Marquis. The Marquis dropped the price that he'd offered. From the previous day to this morning, the market in Chicago had dropped, and so he told Theodore Roosevelt he'd have to pay him less than he'd agreed the previous night. Theodore Roosevelt, uh, uh, when the Marquis wouldn't change his mind, told his men to round up the cattle and take them back out to the, uh, to the prairie. Uh, he uh, understood that uh, to uh, allow oneself to be uh, taken advantage of in that way would not have been a good precedent and and uh, so he stuck by uh, stuck by his interpretation of the original agreement theodore roosevelt could teach us a lot about being a good neighbor not only on the wilds of the uh, uh, the prairie but also about how the united states could be a good neighbor uh, throughout uh, the hemisphere and throughout the world and so uh, uh, to commemorate the april 3rd uh, uh, speech that Theodore Roosevelt made in Waukesha, Wisconsin, on uh, good neighborliness uh, with regards to foreign policy. Uh, that's the reading today. Uh, we benefit from the fact that uh, in April and May of this year, uh, we get wonderful material from Theodore Roosevelt's travels. Uh, he was on holiday, and when he went on holiday as our president, he did not go golfing. He went hunting and camping. One of those camping trips on that particular tour through the country was a two-week camp at Yellowstone with the aforementioned John Burroughs, and hence some of the uh, observations that Burroughs makes in his remarks. But with an eye towards time and hoping to land this program earlier than the other programs I've done, we've been most patient if you've sat through the first uh, two of these. Uh, the first speech was rather long, and yesterday uh, there was a lot to say. Uh, today, uh, we're going to have uh, two quick readings, one from April 3rd, uh, 1903 in Waukesha, Wisconsin, and the other a reading from what John Burroughs wrote uh, after Theodore Roosevelt's passing. So if I may, and thank you. The uh, speech on that date in Waukesha was titled Courtesy and Strength in International Affairs. Gentlemen and ladies, 
my fellow citizens of Wisconsin. You are men and women of Wisconsin, but you are men and women of America first. I am glad of having the chance of saying a few words to you today. I believe with all my heart in this nation playing its part manfully and well. I believe that we are now at the outset of the 20th century, face to face with the great world problems, that we cannot help playing the part of a great world power, that all we can decide is whether we will play it well or ill. I do not want to see us shrink from any least bit of duty. We have not only taken during the past five years a position of greater importance in this Western Hemisphere than ever before, but we have taken a position of great importance even in the furthest Orient, in that furthest West, which is the immemorial East. We must hold our own. If we show ourselves weaklings, we will earn the contempt of mankind. And what is of far more consequence, our own contempt. But I would like to impress upon every public man, upon every writer in the press, the fact that strength should go hand in hand with courtesy, with scrupulous regard in word and deed, not only for rights, but for the feelings of other nations. I want to see a man able to hold his own. I have no respect for the man who will put up with injustice. If a man will not take his part, the part is not worth taking. That is true. On the other hand, I have a hearty contempt for the man who is always walking about wanting to pick a quarrel, and above all, wanting to say something unpleasant about someone else. He is not an agreeable character anywhere, and the fact that he talks loud does not necessarily mean that he fights hard either. Sometimes you will see a man who will talk loud and fight hard, but he does not fight hard because he talks loud, but in spite of it. I want the same thing to be true of us as a nation. I am always sorry whenever I see any reflection that seems to come from America upon any friendly nation. To write or say anything unkind, unjust, or inconsiderate about any foreign nation does not do us any good, and does not help us toward holding our own if ever the need should arise to hold our own. I am sure you will not misunderstand me. I am sure that it is needless for me to say that I do not believe the United States should ever suffer a wrong. I should be the first to ask that we resent a wrong from the strong, just as I should be the first to insist that we do not wrong the weak. As a nation, if we are to be true to our past, we must steadfastly keep these two positions to submit to no injury by the strong and to inflict no injury on the weak. It is not at all necessary to say disagreeable things about the strong in order to impress them with the fact that we do not intend to submit to injury. Keep our Navy up to the highest point of efficiency. Have good ships and enough of them. Have the officers and the enlisted men on them trained to handle them so that in the future the American Navy shall rise level whenever the need comes to the standard it has set in the past. 
keep in our hearts the rugged, manly virtues which have made our people formidable as foes and valuable as friends throughout the century and a quarter of our national life. Do all that, and having done it, remember that it is a sensible thing to speak courteously of others. I believe in the Monroe Doctrine. I shall try to see that this nation lives up to it, and as long as I am president, it will be lived up to. But I do not intend to make the doctrine an excuse or a justification for being unpleasant to other powers, for speaking ill of other powers. We want the friendship of mankind. We want to get on well with the other nations of mankind, with the small nations and with the big nations. We want so to carry ourselves that if, which I think most unlikely, any quarrel should arise, it would be evident that it was not a quarrel of our own seeking, but one that was forced upon us. If it is forced on us, I know you too well not to know that you will stand up to it if the need comes. But you will stand up to it all the better if you have not blustered or spoken ill of other nations in advance. We want friendship. We want peace. We wish well to the nations of mankind. We look with joy at any prosperity of theirs. We wish them success, not failure. We rejoice as mankind moves forward over the whole earth. Each nation has its own difficulties. We have difficulties enough at home. Let us improve ourselves, lifting what needs to be lifted here, and let others do their own work. Let us attend to our own business, keep our own hearthstone swept and in order. Do not shirk any duty. Do not shirk any difficulty that is forced upon us, but do not invite it by foolish language. Do not assume a quarrelsome and unpleasant attitude toward other people. Let the friendly expressions of foreign powers be accepted as tokens of their sincere goodwill and reflecting their real sentiments, and let us avoid any language on our own part which might tend to turn their goodwill into ill will. All that is mere common sense, the kind of common sense that we apply in our own lives, man to man, neighbor to neighbor. And remember that substantially what is true among nations is true on a small scale among ourselves. The man who is a weakling, who is a coward, we all despise, and we ought to despise him. If a man cannot do his own work and take his own part, he does not count. And I have no patience with those who would have the United States unable to take its own part, to do its work in the world. But remember that a loose tongue is just as unfortunate an accompaniment for a nation as for an individual. The man who talks ill of his neighbors, the man who invites trouble for himself and them is a nuisance. The stronger, the more self-confident the nation is, the more carefully it should guard its speech as well as its action, and should make it a point, in the interest of its own self-respect, to see that it does not say what it cannot make good, that it avoids giving needless offense, that it shows genuinely and sincerely its desire for friendship with the rest of mankind, but that it keeps itself in shape to make its weight felt, should the need arise. 
That is, in substance, my theory of what our foreign policy should be. Let us not boast, not insult anyone, but make up our minds coolly what is necessary to say. Say it, then stand to it, whatever the consequences may be. My, how I would have loved to have had uh, Theodore Roosevelt as a neighbor. I think he would have been a, a good friend, a neighbor, and spoken very honestly and directly uh, uh, with his neighbors, just as he did on behalf of the United States as our, uh, as our president. So April 3rd, 1837, John Burroughs is born. Uh, that makes him about uh, uh, 21 years older than Theodore Roosevelt. Uh, hence, uh, the uh, Um John is not just... Uh, from the Dutch, but also in regard to the uh, uh, to the age difference between the two men. Uh, it's not in this letter, but uh, I think it was Theodore Roosevelt that uh, admitted that when Burroughs came to Pine Knot uh, in uh, Abermarle County, Virginia, a retreat purchased by Mrs. Roosevelt in 1905, an old sharecropper's house, no running water, no electricity, just the way the Roosevelts liked it, five visits between uh, Boxing Days and Thanksgivings and a, a spring birding holiday with Burroughs. Uh, the complaint uh, being perhaps by Mrs. Roosevelt that uh, Roosevelt wore old John Burroughs, whom John out. Burroughs was a bird man. He liked to watch the birds and let the birds come to him. Theodore Roosevelt liked to tramp through the fields and the woods at a four mile an hour gait, stirring up the birds uh, as he went. So. I don't think uh, Um John did as much uh, sitting on a stump and watching the birds as he would have liked to have done uh, when with Theodore Roosevelt. And by the way, everyone in Virginia, Pine Knot, the Edith and Theodore Roosevelt uh, uh, Pine Knot Foundation is still active uh, nearby Keene, Virginia. And I hope that you might uh, connect with those wonderful people at the uh, Edith and Theodore Roosevelt Pine Knot Foundation, one of our wonderful friends. Uh, this uh, next reading, uh, and again, briefly, in January 1919, this article was published in Natural History, the Journal of the American Museum, and was in part subsequently read before the Roosevelt Memorial Meeting at the Century Club in New York City, February 9, 1919, remembering that Theodore Roosevelt uh, perished on January 6th of that year. Uh, that was read at that meeting by Major George Haven Putnam. President of G.P. Putnam and Sons Publishers, uh, the same George Putman, uh, who in 1884, with the uh, endorsement of Henry Cabot Lodge, hired a young Theodore Roosevelt as a special partner, and hence the writing assignments uh, laboriously undertaken uh, here without much uh, uh, joy, I think, by Theodore Roosevelt while he was ranching, uh, producing biographies of Oliver, Oliver Cromwell and Senator Thomas Hart Benton, uh, the latter from Missouri and so closely associated with the uh, concept of manifest destiny. So uh, the words of John Burroughs to uh, take us out uh, of the program today, titled, His Americanism Reached Into the Marrow of His Bones by John Burroughs. And this, unlike the speeches I'm reading from Theodore Roosevelt, this edited slightly uh, to uh, uh, bring us in under the wire. Never before in my life has it been so hard for me to accept the death of any man as it has been for me to accept the death of Theodore Roosevelt. I think I must have unconsciously felt that his power to live was unconquerable. Such unbounded energy and vitality impressed one like the perennial forces of nature. 
I cannot associate the thought of death with him. He always seemed to have an unlimited reserve of health and power. From his days in Montana to the past year or two, I saw and was with him many times in many places. In the Yellowstone Park in the spring of 1903, in his retreat in the woods of Virginia during the last term of his presidency, at Oyster Bay at various times, in Washington at the White House, and at my place on the Hudson. I have felt the arousing and stimulating impact of his wonderful personality. When he came into the room, it was as if a strong wind had blown the door open. You felt his radiant energy before he got halfway up the stairs. When we went birding together, it was ostensibly as teacher and pupil, but it often turned out that the teacher got as many lessons as he gave. Early in May, during the last term of his presidency, he asked me to go with him to his retreat in the woods of Virginia, called Pine Knot, and help him name his birds. Together, we identified more than 75 species of birds and wild fowl. He knew them all but two, and I knew them all but two. He taught me Bewick's wren and one of the rarer warblers, and I taught him the swamp sparrow and the pine warbler. He was a naturalist on the broadest grounds, uniting much technical knowledge with knowledge of the daily lives and habits of all forms of wildlife. He probably knew tenfold more natural history than all the presidents who had preceded him, and I think one is safe in saying more human history also. Roosevelt was a many-sided man, and every side was like an electric battery. Such versatility, such vitality, such thoroughness, such copiousness have rarely been united in one man. He was not only a full man, he was also a ready man and an exact man. He could bring all his vast resources of power and knowledge to bear upon a given subject instantly. Courageous, confident, self-assertive, he was yet singularly tender and sympathetic. He was an autocratic Democrat. Hail fellow well met with teamsters, mechanics, and cowboys, he could meet kings and emperors on their own ground. A lover of big game hunting, he was a naturalist before he was a sportsman. His Americanism reached into the marrow of his bones. I could never get him interested in that other great American, one more strictly of the people than he was, Walt Whitman. Whitman's democracy was too rank and unrelieved to attract him. The Rooseveltian strenuousness and austerity and high social ideals stood in the way. Roosevelt combined and harmonized opposite qualities. Never have I known such good fellowship joined to such austerity, such moral courage to such physical courage, such prodigious powers of memory united with such powers of original thought. He could face a charging lion or a grizzly bear as coolly as he could an angry politician. There was always something imminent about him, like an avalanche that the sound of your voice might loosen. The word demanded by the occasion was instantly on his lips, whether it were to give pleasure or pain. In his presence, one felt that the day of judgment might come at any moment. No easy tolerance with him, but you could always count on the just word, the square deal, and tolerance of your opinion, if it were well-founded. 
The charge that he was an impulsive man has no foundation. It was a wrong interpretation of his power of quick decision. His singleness of purpose and the vitality and alertness of each of his many sides enabled him to decide quickly where others hesitate and stumble. The emphasis and the sharpness of his yea and nay were those of a man who always knew his own mind and knew it instantly. What seemed rashness in him was only the action of a mind of extraordinary quickness and precision. His uncompromising character made him many enemies, but without it he would not have been the Roosevelt who stamped himself so deeply upon the hearts in the history of his countrymen. When I think of his death amid these great days, when such tremendous world events are fast becoming history, and recall what a part he could have played in them and would gladly have played had his health permitted, I realize with new poignancy what a loss the world has suffered in his passing. A pall seems to settle upon the very sky. The world is bleaker and colder for his absence from it. We shall not look upon his like again. Farewell, great soul. Farewell. The words of John Burroughs. Theodore Roosevelt said we have no finer naturalist writer than John Burroughs. If you get up near Kingston, uh, along the Hudson River, uh, nearby you'll find slab sides, uh, his, uh, his home and, and uh, writing, uh, writing retreat uh, up in the uh, Catskills. And then beyond that, if I recall my geography, a little place called Woodchuck Lodge, very nearby the final resting place of John Burroughs. Uh, wonderful stories of the visits of uh, the four of them. Uh, the Burroughs and the Roosevelts, uh, Roosevelt and Edith uh, taking the, uh, the paddle of steamship up the Hudson River and being met uh, at the uh, at the dock in Kingston uh, by John Burroughs and his uh, his wagon and team. It's April third. Uh, it's uh, 2020. Uh, we've uh, enjoyed the first three installments. I hope you've enjoyed them as much as I've enjoyed them. Tomorrow, Saturday, April fourth. We're going to celebrate a Theodore Roosevelt salute to Minnesota. Uh, the brief readings uh, tomorrow will be from two speeches Theodore Roosevelt made April 4th, 1903, uh, to the state legislature in uh, St. Paul and uh, at the University of Minnesota in its chapel uh, to the uh, attendees there in Minneapolis. Uh, we'll review a little bit of the special relationship between Theodore Roosevelt and Minnesota one of the six states that voted for the Bull Moose Progressive candidate in 1912. And uh, I look forward to being with you. Again, please send your questions and comments to me uh, at uh, Teddy Roosevelt Show or at Medora ND. Uh, I do hope that uh, as I get better at doing these things over the computer, I'll remember which button to click at 7 a.m. And I'll make sure that uh, these programs are done in a way that tries to keep them uh, interesting and enjoyable for you. Uh, they're really uh, enjoyable for me for the chance I get to uh, review some of the material and, and uh, choose uh, what we'll be talking about. Uh, we will be taking Sunday off. Uh, I will post something on Saturday night about Theodore Roosevelt's faith life. Uh, my thought being I'll publish a, a list of uh, published by Ladies Home Journal. Uh, for whom uh, Theodore Roosevelt served as a special editor after his presidency. And the title of this uh, article is uh, uh, Reasons uh, Why a Man Should Go to Church. And uh, we'll uh, publish those Saturday night for Sunday. 
We'll pick up uh, on Monday at 7 a.m. And, and do a full set of programs. But join us here tomorrow at Teddy Talks, 26 Days with the 26th President, 9 a.m. Eastern, 8 a.m. Central, 7 a.m. Mountain, 6 a.m. Pacific. And uh, again, all the best to everyone out there. Stay safe, stay well, stay at home, and uh, do anything that you can do uh, to uh, be a good neighbor. Godspeed, everyone. Thanks for being with us here today.